This is a Tuesdays with Merton bonus episode from the archives of the Thomas Merton Center at Bellarmine University. The following speaker, Dr. M. Sean Copeland, is a professor emerita of systematic theology at Boston College. It was the seventh annual Thomas Merton Center Black History Month lecture, taped live February 26, 2013, at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. The Wound and the Witnesses, Merton and King and the Exercise of the Prophetic. Thus says the Lord, go get a watchman, let him declare what he sees. Watchman, what of the night? It's Isaiah 21, 6 and 11. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. This comes from an old spiritual Despite passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution of the United States, as well as approval of the 1875 Civil Rights Act, with its guarantee of equal access to public accommodations and public facilities, the phrase racially segregated stands as the characteristic descriptor of American culture and its concrete expression in the structures and institutions that comprise our social order. In upholding the 1890 Louisiana court uh, in Plessy versus Ferguson, the United States Supreme Court voided the Constitution, disenfranchised blacks, and inscribed the doctrine of separate but equal onto ordinary daily American life. By the close of the 19th century, most southern states had expanded segregation regulations and Jim Crow laws were enforced. The southern historian C. Van Woodward observed that by the 1850s, law and or custom had created and sanctioned, quote, a racial ostracism that extended to churches and schools, to housing and jobs, to eating and drinking, all forms of public transportation, to sports and recreation, to hospitals, orphanages, prisons, and asylums, and ultimately to funeral homes, morgues, and cemeteries." Close quote. The condition of segregation was held to be a, quote, final settlement, close quote, a, quote, permanent system, close quote, beyond alteration or change. And historian John Hope Franklin concluded in his study of legalized segregation in the United States by saying, the law had created two worlds, so separate that communication between them was almost impossible. The wall of segregation had become so formidable, so impenetrable, apparently, that the entire weight of the American tradition of equality and all the strength of the American constitutional system had to be brought to bear in order to make even the slightest crack in it. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm battling just a little bit of an allergy. Despite a relatively comfortable childhood in Atlanta, Georgia, as the son of a respected and prominent Baptist minister, Martin Luther King Jr. grew up behind the wall of segregation. 
He too experienced the bitter sting of racial ostracism and exclusion. Rejection by a six-year-old white playmate, witnessing his father belittled by a police officer and insulted by a shoe salesman, being forced to stand in the aisle of a bus for some 90 miles so that whites might sit. King acknowledged that he wrestled long and hard with the question, how can I love a race of people who hate me? Only after he entered college, spent summers outside the segregated South, and participated in interracial groups, did King begin to, quote, conquer that anti-white feeling, close quote, but he never surrendered his resentment toward the system of segregation and felt it a grave injustice. On the other side of the wall of segregation, white Americans settled themselves, accepting icy glacial gradualism as the mode of moral and social response. In 1941, Thomas Merton traded life behind that wall for another and altogether radical way of life. He entered the order of Cistercians of the Strict Observance, familiarly known as the Trappists, a religious order of men which traces its roots to the sixth century, to the very beginnings of Western monasticism. As a scholar of spirituality and religious life, Sandra Schneiders suggests that Merton began his contemplative life with a, quote, attitude toward the world that was more than tinged with the contempt and even arrogance of someone who saw himself as having chosen the better part, in contrast to those who did not have the spiritual wisdom or moral courage to abandon the sinful context of ordinary life for the purity of the cloister. Yet, as Sheila Briggs points out, the young novice of the seven-story mountain eventually would be replaced by a monk deeply in love with the world. Perhaps that transformation reached a critical point in the late 1950s, pouring out in the well-known Louisville epiphany that Merton described in his journal. I'll just raise a, read a little portion of it <clears throat> because we are in Louisville. In Louisville at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. The whole illusion of a separate holy existence is a dream. Not that I question the validity of my vocation or of my monastic life, but the conception of separation from the world that we have in the monastery too easily presents itself as a complete illusion. We are in the same world as everybody else. The world of the bomb, the world of racial hatred, the world of technology, the world of mass media, big business, revolution, and all the rest. We take a different attitude to all these things, for we belong to God, yet so does everybody else belong to God. By the time Merton experienced the gift of this epiphany, the Montgomery bus boycott had become legend. 
For 381 days in heat and cold, sun and rain, despite harassment by police, intimidation by the Ku Klux Klan, jeopardized jobs, hastily contrived ordinances to prohibit organized taxi transportation of boycotters, even bombings of homes and churches, black people of all ages in Montgomery refused to ride buses. Mostly, they walked. On November 13, 1956, the US Supreme Court declared Alabama's state and local laws enforcing segregation on buses to be unconstitutional. Some 50,000 black people, under the leadership of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., had maintained their solidarity and brought down segregation in the key city of the old Confederacy, the site where Jefferson Davis was made president of the secessionist states. Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife Coretta Scott had arrived in Montgomery, Alabama, scarcely two years earlier, taking up in 1954 the pastorate of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. But the life King had anticipated for himself and his family changed dramatically on December 1st, 1955, when Rosa Parks refused to yield her seat on a bus to a white male passenger. The arrest of Mrs. Parks galvanized Montgomery's black residents, and a cross-section of that community, clergy, physicians, school teachers, lawyers, businessmen, Pullman car porters, postal workers, met to think through the situation and develop a response. The bus boycott planned for Monday, December 5th, was successful. The Reverend Ralph Abernathy, minister of Montgomery's First Baptist Church, E.D. Nixon, an activist and Pullman porter, and E.N. French, minister of the Hilliard Chapel AME Zion Church, strategically broached the need for a more permanent organization to direct their efforts. But the black community's leadership was divided, contentious, and apprehensive. Unanimously, the planning group chose the 26-year-old newcomer to lead the Montgomery Improvement Association. The action, King mused later, had caught me unawares. It had happened so quickly that I did not even have time to think it through. As the days, weeks, and months of the boycott wore on, in addition to his regular duties, King now faced increasing and complex responsibilities. He also was deeply frightened by serious threats against his life and his family. King tells us that one night, after an especially disturbing, harassing phone call, he could not sleep. Restless, he got out of bed and began to walk the floor. He writes, finally I went to the kitchen and heated a pot of coffee. I was ready to give up. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing to be a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had almost gone, I determined to take my problem to God. My head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight were still vivid in my memory. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right. But now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, 
And if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. At that moment, he writes, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never before experienced him. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet reassurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth. God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to pass from me. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to go to face anything. The outer situation remained the same, but God had given me inner calm. <clears throat> Merton came to recognize that his solitude was not for himself alone. Rather, it was the task of the monk to speak out of his silence and solitude to be a witness to the recovery and possibilities of human communion. King came to recognize that fidelity to his vocation required complete trust in God, in God's love, God's ability, and God's desire to sustain him in inner peace, in denouncing the injustices of segregation. The lives of these two men converge in their exercise of prophetic witness in the struggle for civil rights and against poverty and militarism. A body of broken bones. Such was Thomas Merton's reading of our human condition. Martin Luther King Jr. sought to heal that body, to reset those bones through a redemptive praxis of love. Like the prophet Amos, King refused to adjust himself to the evils of the time, discrimination, segregation, religious bigotry, militarism, and violence. They were as watchmen, this Baptist minister and Catholic monk, reading the signs of the times, declaring what they saw, and denouncing social injustice as sin. This Catholic monk and Baptist minister understood the deepest telos, or authentic end of social justice and social transformation, was neither desegregation nor integration, but through agape, Christian love, the achievement of the beloved community as a foretaste of the eschatological realization of the mystical body of Christ. In order to fill out this notion of an exercise of the prophetic, the lecture, what remains, has three sections, or is comprised of three sections. The first offers a digest of King's and Merton's understanding of the social mission of the church. The second sketches King's notion of the beloved community. And the third sketches a praxis of redemptive love. This praxis is constituted through the performance of nonviolent resistance motivated by agape, that is, overflowing other love, and the deepest desire to realize the beloved community. Thus, perhaps, we may more deeply appreciate their risk for the prophetic, their thirst for justice, their thirst for us, and above all, their thirst for God. So the social mission of the church. 
during the Montgomery uh, boycott, King had expected that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would prove strong allies, that they would understand and support blacks fighting for justice. To his dismay, only one white minister in Montgomery, Robert Gretz, publicly supported the boycott, and he was the pastor of Black Trinity Lutheran Church. Other ministers were either silent or openly joined the segregationists. E. Stanley Frazier, pastor of St. James Methodist Church, is reported to have told King that, quote, the job of a minister is to lead the souls of men to God, not to bring about confusion by getting tangled up in transitory social problems, close quote. In 1957, King spoke to the interracially sponsored Conference on Christian Faith and Human Relations in Nashville, Tennessee. In his address, he pointed out that the vast majority of white ministers in the South seemed to be, quote, citizens of two worlds, close quote. He continued, every minister of the gospel has a mandate to stand up courageously for righteousness, to proclaim the eternal verities of the gospel, and to lead men from the desolate midnight of falsehood to the bright daybreak of truth. Except for a few white moderates, including theologian Will D. Campbell, most white clergy remained unmoved against King's repeated appeals. King's belief in the universal Christian church remained steadfast. The lukewarm response of so many white churches could not invalidate the mission and message of the gospel. Although white churches were reluctant to participate in the civil rights movement, to a large extent, black churches embraced it. Unlike their white counterparts, black churches could not separate religion and politics so sharply or decisively. Long before the eruption of a formal black theology or Latin American liberation theology, the historic black church was the religious and cultural center, the refuge of segregated black life, the black church developed a pedagogy for the oppressed. It taught and conserved morals, strengthened families, exercised final authority over what was good and right, provided a venue for cultural formation and release, advocated and protested for freedom and equality, established schools, and stimulated economic ventures. The most significant theological affirmations of the black church are first, the black Christian principle. That is, the belief that all human life is sacred. And secondly, the explicit universality of Christian fellowship or Christian communion. Thus, for the black church, the civil rights movement fundamentally was not something extrinsic. It was the church in active obedience to the imperatives of the gospel. Yet, not all black congregations and their ministers fell in line behind King. Joseph H. Jackson, then head of the National Baptist Convention, the largest organization of black churches, was the most prominent of those who withheld support. Initially, Jackson had endorsed King, even assisting the Montgomery movement financially and urging other National Baptists to do the same. But he grew alienated by what he considered the younger man's increasingly radical politics and widening national influence in black and white communities. Most of the black ministers who opposed King did not do so openly, although some, due to fear of white repri reprisals, 
refused to allow King and his co-workers to use or speak in their churches for fear of appearing to stir up racial friction. When confronted with the reticence of black clergy regarding the civil rights struggle, King reminded them that, quote, a minister cannot preach the glories of heaven while ignoring social conditions in his own community that cause men an earthly hell, close quote. In 1963, in a sermon at Atlanta's Ebenezer Church, King criticized the black church's excessive preoccupation with the otherworldly. There is something wrong with any church that limits the gospel to talking about heaven over yonder. There is something wrong with any minister who becomes so otherworldly in his orientation that he forgets about what is happening now, forgets about the here. Here where men are trammeled over by the iron feet of oppression. Here where thousands of God's children are caught in an airtight cage of poverty. Here, where thousands of men and women are depressed and in agony because of their earthly plight, where the darkness of life surrounds so many of God's children. On King's account, the Christian church had a social mission rooted in its prophetic task and fidelity to the preaching of Jesus. The projection of a social gospel was the only true witness of a Christian life in a segregated and oppressive America. King understood segregation as a double contradiction of the country's democratic principles and its religious heritage. Segregation betrayed the country's best and most noble ideals of liberty and justice. However, he maintained the religious contradiction of segregation was the worst. The church had a moral obligation to condemn segregation and to work for its elimination. He argued, if we are to remain true to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we cannot rest until segregation and discrimination are banished from every area of American life. Moreover, he declared, any religion which professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the social and economic conditions that scar the soul is a spiritually moribund religion only waiting for the day to be buried. This was a question of authentic discipleship. Can the church speak a relevant word about God and the revolutionary situation of ideological crisis, massive human suffering, and existential despair while ignoring the radical call to follow the way of the cross? Only commitment to the realization of the beloved community could resurrect such religion. King condemned as do-nothing religion any religion that would profess concern for the souls of human beings and fail to be concerned about the social conditions that corrupt and cripple the soul. The Christian church's social mission required that it take its primary goal, the development of the beloved community, and agape as its regulating ideal. Merton's seeds of destruction appeared almost midway through the tumultuous decade of the 1960s. In the author's note, Merton reiterated his thinking about the relation of his monastic vocation and that tumultuous social scene. He writes, the monk's adversary is not time, not history, but evil will 
and the accumulated inheritance of past untruth and past sin. This evil the monk must see. He must even denounce it if others fail to do so. What is the meaning of that denunciation? Is it to be regarded as a political act in the sense of an express determination to influence politics? Perhaps indirectly so. I speak not only as a monk, but also as a very responsible citizen of a very powerful nation. However, it is not my intention to imply that a state, which is and should be secular, has to be guided by the perspectives of an eschatological church. But I do intend to say at what point I and Christians who think as I do become morally obligated to dissent. Merton was insistent about the social mission of Christianity in history. Again, Christianity, he writes, cannot reject history. It cannot be a denial of time. Christianity is centered on an historical event which has changed the meaning of history. The freedom of the Christian contemplative is not freedom from time, but freedom in time. It is the freedom to go and meet God in the inscrutable mystery of his will here and now, in this precise moment in which he asks man's cooperation in shaping the course of history according to the demands of divine truth, mercy, and fidelity. The church then must enter into history, bearing the message of the truth and freedom of Christ for the salvation of humankind in and through history, through temporal decisions made for the love of Christ, the Redeemer and Lord of history. From his Trappist hermitage, Merton compellingly interpreted what was happening in his church and in his country. Indeed, he took it as a duty in conscience, quote, to try to make his fellow whites stop doing the things they are doing and see the problem in a different light. Merton wrote perceptively, the purpose of nonviolent protest <clears throat> in its deepest and most spiritual dimensions is then to awaken the conscience of the white man to the awful reality of his injustice and of his sin so that he will be able to see that the Negro problem is really a white problem that the cancer of injustice and hate which is eating white society and is only partly manifest in racial segregation with all its consequences is rooted in the heart of the white man himself. <clears throat> in the summer of 1963, Merton wrote letters to a white liberal which comprised the first of the three parts of Seeds of Destruction. This work was edited and published in 1964. In it, Merton interrogated several social injustice, especially racism in the wake of the September bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, in which Addie Mae Collins, Carol Robertson, Cynthia Wesley, and Denise McNair were killed. An edited version of Letters to a White Liberal was published in the December issue of Ramparts and as a pamphlet under the title The Black Revolution. Like King, Merton understood the civil rights movement not merely as a political struggle, but a spiritual and religious one. How, he asks in Seeds of Destruction, do we treat this other Christ, 
this person who happens to be black. Merton makes Matthew 25 concrete and explicit. Christians, Protestant and Catholic, who refuse to ride beside blacks on public transportation, to eat at the same lunch counters, to use the same public facilities, who refuse to attend schools with blacks, to worship in the same congregations as blacks, to receive sacramental communion with blacks, are refusing Christ himself. Actions such as these coalesce, he writes, as, quote, implicitly schismatic and rend the unity of the body of Christ. <clears throat> Further, in scathing theological, theological critique of lynching, Merton states, it would not be easy for a Christian, quote, to mutilate another man, string him up on a tree, shoot him full of holes if he believed what, that what he did to that man was done to Christ. He continues, on the contrary, he must somehow imagine that he is doing this to the devil to prevent the devil doing it to him. But in thinking such thoughts, a Christian has spiritually apostatized from Christianity." Close quote. Merton makes Matthew 25 concrete and explicit. To lynch, shoot, torture, maim, murder blacks is to lynch, shoot, torture, maim, murder Christ himself. Actions such as these insult and mock the unity of the body of Christ. In the Black Revolution, Merton speaks directly to Catholics about relations between whites and blacks. A genuinely Catholic approach to the Negro would assume not only that the white and the Negro are essentially equal in dignity, but also that they are brothers in the fullest sense of the word. This means to say that a genuinely Catholic attitude in matters of race is one which concretely accepts and fully recognizes the fact that different races and cultures are correlative. They mutually complete one another. The power and cogency of Merton's personal and public witness presented a forceful invitation to others and to us to deal with the content of our own faith and the kind of vision that faith inspires. <clears throat> Resetting the body of broken bones. In my own research, it is not precisely clear when King first uses the phrase, the beloved community. It is likely that it was used in the 1958 essay, The Current Crisis in Race Relations. Here King asserted, quote, the end of nonviolent resistance is redemption and reconciliation. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community, while the aftermath of violence is tragic bitterness, close quote. John Ansborough, in his intellectual biography of King, locates the origin of the phrase, the beloved community, in the work of the 19th century American philosopher, Josiah Royce. Ansborough demonstrates that King encountered Royce's work as part of the reading in six courses that he took with Professor L. Harold DeWolf during his doctoral studies at Boston University 
not Boston College, <laughs> Boston University. In The Problem of Christianity, Roy stated, quote, the principle of principles in all Christian morals remains this. Since you cannot find the universal and beloved community, create it, close quote. It is no exaggeration to say that King set out to do just this. In King's own incipient practical or political theology, there are three doctrines generative of a human approximation of the beloved community. First, an understanding of the human person or theological anthropology. Secondly, an understanding of society and the role of religion in society. And third, the notion of agape, Christian love. Without these, neither blacks nor whites could envision the beloved community. Yet even with these elements, that community could only be realized in the gift of grace and hence its eschatological character. So I'll just say something about each of these elements. First, theological anthropology. King understood and interpreted the doctrine of the Imago Dei in light of both the Hebrew and Christian traditions of thinking about the human being as an heir to a legacy of dignity and worth. He writes, this innate worth referred to in the phrase, the image of God, is universally shared in equal portions by all. There is no graded scale of essential worth. There is no divine right of one race which differs from divine right of another. Every human being has etched in his personality the indelible stamp of the creator. Segregation betrayed sacredness in the human person. It treated human beings as means, as objects, rather than as ends. Drawing on the work of Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, King charged that segregation substitutes an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship. Human beings were made for relationship, for communion with one another. Segregation violated the conditions for the possibility of relationship, of communion. Indeed, Merton echoed this position from the perspective of false integration. He writes in The Black Revolution, to assume the superiority of the white race and of a Euro-American culture as axiomatic, and to proceed from there to, and he has in parentheses, integrate all, in quotes, all other races and cultures by a purely one-sided operation is a pure travesty of Catholic unity in truth. In fact, this fake Catholicism, this parody of unity, which is no unity at all, but a one-sided and arbitrary attempt to reduce others to a condition of identity with ourselves is one of the most disastrous of misconceptions. Frequently, King emphasized the human being's spiritual nature or freedom. He was realistic about that nature. Sin was no mere lag of nature that could be eliminated through liberal notions of progress. King deemed our propensity to sin and evil as tragic, a tragic threefold estrangement through which human beings are separated from themselves, from their neighbors, and from God. Human beings, he concluded along with his namesake, Human beings are sinners in need of God's forgiving grace. Segregation, he repeated over and over, was a moral evil, a sin. Racial segregation, he declared, is a blatant denial of the unity we have in Christ. 
It is a tragic evil which is utterly unchristian. Indeed, he explained, segregation inevitably made for inequality, and segregation scars the soul of both the segregator and the segregated, and it ends up depersonalizing the segregated. King maintained that segregation and its twin discrimination not only insulted God, who was the ultimate foundation, creator, and giver of human dignity and human rights, they insulted God's image and glory enfleshed in God's human creation. In concert with King's position, Merton reminded whites that blacks were not, quote, simply asking to be accepted into the white man's society and eventually absorbed by it. Such attitudes, Merton stated, merely demonstrated how whites clung to the notion of white superiority. With commanding irony, Merton argued, quote, it is simply taken for granted that since the white man is superior, the Negro wants to become a white man. And we liberals and Christians that we are, advance generously with open arms to embrace our little black brother and welcome him into white society. He goes on to warn, do not expect blacks to be grateful for such attitudes. Not only are blacks not grateful, they are not impressed by such falsity. Indeed, with these attitudes and actions, whites do, quote, the greatest harm to Christian truth, close quote. So religion in society. <clears throat> King and Merton recognized the concrete and social impact of sin in society. In one sermon, King refigured our collective human enmeshment in sin and evil in light of the parable of the prodigal son. Like the prodigal, human beings have strayed to the far countries of secularism, materialism, and racial injustice. Our journey has brought a moral and spiritual famine in Western civilization but it is not too late to return home. Like the prophets of old, King mediated God's urgent plea to America, the divine call to metanoia, to conversion. In the far country of segregation and discrimination, you have oppressed 19 million of your Negro brothers, binding them economically and driving them into the ghetto, and you have stripped them of self-respect and self-dignity, making them feel they are nobodies. Return to your true home of democracy, brotherhood, and fatherhood in God, and I will take you in and give you a new opportunity to be a truly great nation. King's social concern and compassion, though, were never limited to the plight of blacks or even to the plight of the poor and unemployed in the United States. To borrow an expression from theologian Luther Ivory, both Merchant and King, quote, have bequeathed the nation and the global village both a hard challenge and a subversive hope, a hope con in consistent concrete commitment to interracial and intercultural concern and cooperation for the common human good. King's 1967 Christmas Sermon on Peace discloses the expansiveness of his social vision. He raised his voice to denounce wars around the globe, violence, militarism, economic exploitation, the proliferation of nuclear weapons and challenged all men and women of goodwill to find food, clothing, and shelter for the millions of God's children in India, Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the United States. He stated quite plainly, 
It really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied into a single garment of destiny. What affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are made to live together because of the interrelated structure of reality. Agape, or Christian love. <clears throat> King read, reflected, wrote, and spoke often of Christian love, of agape. Only through the way of agape, King insisted repeatedly to his followers, could they elevate their souls and also creatively transform society. King considered agape to be, quote, understanding, redeeming goodwill for all. It is an overflowing love which is purely spontaneous, unmotivated, groundless, and creative. It is not set in motion by any quality or function of its object. It is the love of God operating in the human heart, close quote. This is what Bernard Lonergan has thematized as religious conversion on the fourth level of intentional consciousness, speaking of it as a gift of God's love flooding the heart through the Holy Spirit, the heart of stone becoming the heart of flesh, and the heart of flesh becoming effective in good works. Agape sought a full and complete transformation of the whole of one's living and feeling, thoughts and words, deeds and actions. Agape, he maintained, is disinterested love. This kind of love seeks the good of the other, the good of the neighbor. And the neighbor is found in each and every person whom one meets. Agape loves the other for his or her own sake. Consequently, King stressed, the best way to assure that love is disinterested is to have love for the enemy neighbor from whom you can expect no good in return, but only hostility and persecution. Agape grasps the interrelatedness of all life, and thus it seeks to preserve and create community. It is love in action. At one point, King expressed the dynamic and creative power of agape in near-Trinitarian terms. He wrote, the cross is the eternal expression of the length to which God will go in order to restore broken community. The resurrection is a symbol of God's triumph over all the forces that seek to block community. The Holy Spirit is the continuing community-creating reality that moves through history." Close quote. King argued then that desegregation was not enough. In itself, desegregation was empty and shallow. It led to physical proximity without spiritual affinity. On the one hand, it was enforceable by law, but it would never change attitudes and human hearts. On the other hand, integration never really could be enforced by legislation. Its achievement could only come about through the unenforceable obligations that transcended human-made law. Purified inner attitudes, genuine person-to-person -person relations, expressions of compassion, a willingness to suffer and endure persecution, these sprang, King wrote, from commitment to an inner law written on the heart. Authentic integration, King reckoned, could be achieved only through agape. 
This was then the prelude to the beloved community. So <clears throat> this is the third section, a praxis of redemptive love. The realization of the beloved community is rooted in a praxis of redemptive love. King's political theology was performative. It projected a vivid Christian social praxis in which nonviolent resistors, black and white, quite literally shouldered the ignominious cross of segregation and discrimination. These men and women, young people, met physical and psychological, even spiritual suffering with Christian love or agape. Like Jesus, they absorbed sin and hate in their bodies. Gladly, humbly, they endured beatings, water hoses, dog attacks, cattle prods, bullets, and taunts. Like Jesus of Nazareth, they bore in their bodies the effects of our sin. This agopic praxis was sustained through prayer, self-discipline, confidence in the ultimate triumph of good, and meditative remembrance of the body of Jesus of Nazareth broken for our world. This praxis is another expression of Christian solidarity in the here and now, anticipating the eschatological healing and building up of a body of broken bones, the body of a divided people of God. This praxis of redemptive love affirms salvation and human liberation as a work that resists both the reduction of human action to mere social change and the identification of the gospel with even the most just social arrangements. There is then a deep correspondence between the beloved community and the struggle to live justly and humbly in love and mercy in our world and the mystical body of Christ. The praxis of redemptive love interrupts the human desire for mastery and control manifest in segregation and discrimination. This praxis was not so much a strategy as the inculcation of new habits or dispositions. It called for radical conversion, nothing less than the complete transformation of the human person and the human community. Nonviolent resistors, black and white, men and women and children, through their performance, that is daily acting habitually in agopic love, in other regarding neighbor love, selfless to the point of self-sacrifice, fearless and loving in the teeth of persecution, hungering and thirsting for justice, open to and hopeful of God's work in the world, offered us all, for all too brief a moment in the here and now, a glimpse of the beloved community, a glimpse of the possibilities of the mystical body of Christ. Let me conclude. <clears throat> Forty-five years after the tragic assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the untimely death of Thomas Merton, their prophetic challenge to American Christianity, Catholic and Protestant, and to this country remains. King's authentic dream of social transformation rooted in personal and communal sacrifice, in conversion of mind and heart and living, has been repackaged, trivialized, shrunk, and marketed back to us as simple economic inclusion that overlooks sorely needed and thoroughgoing change of the whole of the cultural and social matrix that America is. Authentic integration has been mocked, and segregation, now economic and political, and therefore racial, is the tenor of our time. The dream or the nightmare, theologian James Cone asks us. Sadly, the festering answer is obvious to so many of us. This evening, I've been attempting to draw out the theological character 
of the social and civic program of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and some of the political thought and insight of Thomas Merton. On the broad canvas of theological reflection, I've been trying to illumine the ineluctable link between theology's thoroughgoing public relevance and the yearning for the reign of God. Or to use older, still valuable theological language, I've been trying to demonstrate the intimate relationship between life, the good or virtuous life lived, and eternal life. Once again, to quote Bernard Lonergan, I've been trying to, in this way, show that the ascent of the soul towards God is not merely a private affair, but rather a personal function of an objective common movement in that body of Christ, which takes over, transforms, and elevates every aspect of human life. Surely this was how Thomas Merton lived, and surely this is what Martin Luther King Jr. dreamt. Thank you.